Welcome to Right Spokane Perspective with your host, Tim. And Shannon. It's opinion, fact, information, and your alert system. Stay tuned and enjoy the show. And welcome to Right Spokane Perspective on this Wednesday episode. We are going to have Larry Haskell on with us today. We're going to be talking about law and justice in Spokane County after some inspiration from Shannon. She is back. I am back. Your your vacation from me was is, is very abruptly over. Here we are. Today we're going to talk about seeing God's faithfulness. Throughout her historic 70 years as Britain's ruler, Queen Elizabeth II only endorsed one biography about her life with a personal foreword, the servant queen and the king she serves released in celebration of her 90th birthday the book recounts how her faith guided her as she served her country in the foreword queen elizabeth expressed gratitude for everyone who'd prayed for her and she thanked god for his steadfast love she concluded i have indeed seen his faithfulness Queen Elizabeth's simple statement echoes the testimonies of men and women throughout history who've experienced personal, faithful care of God in their lives. It's this theme underlying a beautiful song King David wrote as he reflected on his life. Recorded in 2 Samuel 22, the song speaks of God's faithfulness in protecting David, providing for him, and even rescuing him when his very life was in danger. In response to his experience of God's faithfulness, David wrote, I will sing the praises of your name. While there's added beauty when God's faithfulness is seen over a long lifetime, we don't have to wait to recount his care in our lives. When we recognize that it's not our own abilities that carry us through life, but the faithful care of a loving father, we're moved to gratitude and praise. Heavenly Father, We are so grateful that in every season of life, sorrow or joy, that we have seen your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, there is sorrow and joy right now in reference to the justice system. A lot of folks are looking at the politicization, is that how you say that, of the judicial and and legal system for lawfare in politics. We're seeing a lot of that all over the country, and it's got people not looking at a at the law and justice system positively, but the reality of law and justice in keeping the community safe and the proper use of law is dealing with people's rights and the people that are infringing on rights at the local level. And we're talking about basic criminal elements and and the enforcement of the law. And to do that, you have to go through the judicial system. Uh, You have to be arrested. There has to be charges. And we've got Larry Haskell, who knows a lot about that process and keeping the community safe from those violent offenders and repeat offenders. So thanks for coming on with us today. Thank you, Tim and Shannon. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. So have you heard a little bit about the uh, mistrust in the justice system as far as like the lawfare and, and maybe the, the activism that is trying to misuse a good judicial system? Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the most poignant examples of it is uh, our own uh, state Supreme Court, uh, which indicated uh, back in uh, the first year, if you will, of COVID in June of 2020, in a letter, talked about the fact that they're going to be looking at factors of race uh, just poignantly uh, in their uh, decision making. And then the most recent, uh, rather poignant statement by the United States Supreme Court in turning down, at least for the time being, review of a Washington personal injury case uh, and said specifically 
that the Washington State Supreme Court is just uh, promoting a different form of the odious practice of racism that we're all trying to thwart. Yes, I, I think that that's an issue we see it also in the corporate world where, you know, everybody's trying to figure out how to position themselves on the hierarchy of victimhood or, you know, the DEI, all this stuff, when we should just be looking at the basic, you know, outcomes, you know, whether it's education, justice, or in the corporate, you know, world, do you do your job or do you not do your job? Did you do the right thing or did you do the wrong thing? It should be very basic. And we're trying to use all these other metrics that fall on, you know, immutable characteristics. And I think that's a, definitely a miscarriage of justice and common sense. So at the local level here, I know that there's a lot of folks, you know, concerned about this next year and, you know, the uh, obviously the drug problem that we've had the increasing crime. And then 2024, we're told it's going to be a rough year. So at the uh, county prosecutor level, kind of what's been going on and moving forward, what do you foresee happening? Well, one of the biggest challenges that we have right now, and, and it's uh, consistent with the other 38 counties in the state, and I, and I believe nationally, there's a, a national shortage of prosecuting attorneys, deputies, assistant DAs, and, and the various titles that they carry. Uh, part of that is the fact that the law schools are uh, actively, uh, I believe, turning people away from the uh, profession of uh, prosecution. They uh, have adopted a philosophy in, in some instances that I've actually heard wherein they accuse prosecutors of doing harm in the community when they prosecute. Quite to the contrary, of course, what we're trying to do is rectify the harm that's already been committed. By the time we get involved, of course, as you know, there's usually a, at least a largely completed, if not a completely completed, uh, law enforcement investigation into crimes. Uh, we don't get it until a, at least the point where law enforcement refers charges. So here in Spokane County, we have the same symptoms, the same shortages. We've had five openings for some period of time, and we're having difficulty attracting candidates uh, for those positions. Now, this seems like the university system has become so woke and so ideological that let's say steal a car and and injure someone or let's say a, create a fatality with a stolen car it does, it shouldn't matter what your race is or uh you know what your upbringing was where you came from you stole a car someone's deceased and, and then you look at the facts of the case and then the justice system should act but it's become so political that the, I would say in the colleges, they're having case studies on whether that person should have a lighter sentence because they started out in a different uh, socioeconomic situation. And this is literally arguing that the the criminal here that caused a deceased person to stole a car is the victim of society. And so they should be, that should be overlooked, their crime to some extent. And so then you don't have attorneys coming into the pipeline to prosecute criminals because criminals are the new victims instead of the victims of the criminals. Right. And hearkening again back to that same uh, U.S. Supreme Court statement by Justice Souter uh, uh, with which uh, Justice Thomas agreed 
uh, and that is every one of the 300 plus uh, people, the uh, million that live in this country, uh, they're all entitled to the same due process under the 14th Amendment, and that's what we should be delivering. And uh, and in my opinion, uh, the failure of the judiciary to follow the uh, fair and impartial rule of law and that facts get applied to the law and the law applied to the facts of the case. Once once we've lost that, uh, the impartiality of the judicial system, uh, that's really uh, the uh, the earmarks of the end of the constitutional republic. Well, because then we're making emotional decisions instead of factual decisions. And instead of looking out for justice for victims, because that's where crime, there's a victim, and that's why it's, most things are a crime, right? And so if, if there's no victim or the criminal now is the new victim, then it's hard to proceed forward in a, a common manner of justice. Obviously, we know that the majority of people that serve long sentences in prison, the one common denominator they have is fatherless homes. The justice system cannot solve a societal issue. It can only solve a judicial decision or a prosecutorial decision based upon a person's actions. And, and we have to keep it that way because if we start letting societal uh, ills bleed into our justice system, then now we have a justice system that is coddling those societal ills, in my view. No, that's correct. And and we have said, and I have continued to uh, to espouse, not only publicly, but also to everybody to whom I sign up as a deputy prosecutor under uh, RCW 3627, and that is we prosecute conduct, not color, and we will never vary from that, regardless of the social pressures to do that or whatever the judiciary has decided they're going to do, we will prosecute conduct and nothing more. Yeah, and that has to be the that has to be the rule of our systems. It actually has been traditionally, and that's they're trying to uh, the activists are trying to change that. So it's a shame that you don't have the university system recognizing that, because obviously, uh, in most cities, uh, we have a little different demographics here, but in most U.S. cities, the people that suffer the most from crime are those uh, victim status. Uh, you know, whether it's race or, or gender or socioeconomic uh, uh, realities, those are the people that are most suffering from uh, violent crime. Absolutely. And in fact, we used to have these discussions when they talked about evidence-based hotspot policing, wherein the police would go to those areas where they receive the most crimes, which sometimes are the poorer neighborhoods, and there are sometimes an increased percentage of persons of color in those neighborhoods. However, the beneficiaries of that type of policing are the people uh, both uh, of color and, and not of color uh, that live in those areas. They benefit from that increased police presence. And uh, I think it's uh, proven itself to be very effective over time. I think so. And so you actually, as the uh, county prosecutor, did you uh, say that this was your last term in office? Yes, it is. Yeah, okay. I, I, as you know, Tim, I've done a, I did a lengthy career in the U.S. military prior to uh, becoming a deputy prosecutor back in 1998. <clears throat> and I did do an additional three years of active, active duty post 9-11. So this is my last term. 
I've got three years left, mm-hmm. and uh, I intend to make it pretty much the same as what you've seen in the sense of we, we will prosecute conduct. We will never prosecute color. Uh, we will never go after buddy, uh, after anybody but for the fact of uh, what the police tell us is the nature of the conduct that they've committed and the harm that they've committed in the community. Well, and I brought that up because I remember, I think, interviewing you uh, the last uh, campaign cycle that you were in and you had stated that this was going to be your, your last term because you wanted to, uh, you know, obviously some you got to retire at some point. Nobody wants to work till they're 80, right? And uh, I know that you're not that old. Um, no. I, I won't I won't make you uh, state your age on the air, but I do want to bring up the point that you're kind of putting out a, a cry for help, a call to action that is something that is going to serve well past your position in the prosecutor's office. And that is telling people those children that are in education that have a, uh, a common sense thread in their life that maybe they want to be a police officer and that may not be the course they take maybe they could go to law school and become a prosecutor because prosecutor's offices are in need and those are good careers if you want to keep your community safe. Is that that safe to say that Larry Haskell is putting a call out there for individuals to urge their their children that are astute to go to law school with the intention of becoming a prosecutor? Absolutely. It's a, it's a very honorable profession. Our goal is to seek justice in every case. I believe that's on our website. Uh, and uh, we do get good candidates. The problem is we don't just get enough candidates. And part of that has to do with uh, finances. Uh, in addition to, uh, you know, some degree of uh, interference, if you will, uh, from the law schools. And I hear this from uh, county to county across the state, that the law schools are uh, are uh, kind of second classing, if you will, uh, careers in prosecution. But uh, a lot of it has to do with money, too. Uh, these uh, young lawyers graduate with a significant amount of debt. And a minimum, they're going to pay 10 years on it before they qualify for any uh, repayment programs. And counties that surround us, to and including Kootenai County to the east, uh, have uh, better pay. And then in some cases, bonus incentives and some sort of thing uh, that uh, we currently don't offer in Spokane County. So it's a continuous challenge for us to attract the talented lawyers, the dedicated lawyers that want to be career prosecutors. Well, and I think that obviously the, the higher paying you know, legal positions are in specialty areas of law, ambulance chasers, maybe. But if uh, an attorney wants to make a an impact or a, a future attorney wants to make an impact in their community in helping it, helping the community stay safe, a good thing to do is become a prosecutor. So that's a call to action from uh, here at Right Spokane Perspective and Larry Haskell. Let's, let's get the right people in to make sure that the justice system is backed up with good, honest uh, lawyers looking to... Uh, see justice done. Uh, We're going to take a break. We're going to be right back again with Larry Haskell. So folks, we're going to be talking more about law and justice. Don't go anywhere. And welcome to 2024. Yes, Right Spokane Perspective is still on the air. Thanks to you listeners that have contributed to keeping the show going. Yes, those contributions go directly to the show. We fell a little bit short last year in our fundraising. We need to make sure that we can Continue the show throughout the year so you can go to rightspokaneperspective.com to contribute or send those most generous checks to P.O. Box 7620-99207. 
and make those checks payable to Right Spokane Perspective. Again, we want to stay on the air. We're going to be bringing you interviews throughout the legislative session about the things that are going on at the state capitol there in Olympia. And we'll be bringing you more interviews to keep us all informed on the things in our local community. Let's keep us on the air. Thanks again and back to the show. And welcome back to Right Spokane Perspective. On this Wednesday episode, we again have Larry Haskell talking about law and justice. We talked about the lack of folks that are getting into the field of law with the intent of becoming a prosecutor. So again, folks out there, if you've got somebody with uh, an intense moral code and want to seek more law and justice in our community, looks like there's plenty of those positions available and the law schools are not putting out the kind of attorneys that would look at keeping our community safe through our justice system, which also needs propped up because one thing that we see with prosecutors and defenders is that those are also individuals that end up becoming judges oftentimes in our communities. And we also need good judges. And, uh, you know, there is a problem with our legal system now because of this activism in law coming down from legislative bodies and also the judicial system. So, Larry, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about those aspects of what's hindering true justice keep it, to keep our community safe. Well, part of the part of the issue, quite frankly, is uh, the effort to shorten sentences, uh, have uh, less harsh penalties, incarcerate less people. Uh, and I'm not saying all of that's bad. Don't get me wrong. I believe in a strong system within the Department of Corrections uh, for uh, rehabilitative efforts. I believe in a strong system post-release for the continuation of rehabilitative efforts, uh, but with the understanding that there still is going to be that class of people that either doesn't want that or that doesn't get it. And uh, what you hear very, very few times in the legislature are the talk about the victims. Uh, the victims of crime are the what I call the only non-volunteer in the courtroom uh, and they have specific rights that, according to the legislature, uh, should be uh, protected in not not less of a manner than those of the accused themselves. Well, then Yet this is practice. An, this seems like an aspect too. I'm sorry to interrupt there, but it, it's not. It, we don't get to see what the prosecutors see, and often we, the public, we might see you know, the outcome of, of something in the media, like you know, in the newspapers this week. There'll probably be some you know, uh, convictions or acquittals of crimes that were committed years ago because of the appeal process and all those things. So we, the public, kind of get lost in, like, the reporting on this because your office, of course, is following all these cases very uh, intricately down to very, every detail as well as, uh, you know, the attorneys that are on the other side. The public just hears the aspect of what the criminal's life was like or the criminal's issues were, we don't hear in the media in this process where, uh, and I, maybe this is the judicial problem too, and, and the legal problem is that the public doesn't hear what's the long-term effects on the victims. You know, we, there, there was that initial victim maybe in the press when the crime was committed, but throughout the process in the media and up to the conviction, you don't hear the struggles of the victim, only the criminal. Well, that's true. And in fact, uh, 
to the extent that it's public knowledge is, you know, we have a lot of rules as prosecutors about what we can talk about uh, while a case is pending resolution. Uh, we have to keep it pretty much to what's in the record already, what's uh, scheduled and that sort of thing. We can't talk about certain aspects of a case. But for instance, uh, uh, just uh, as recently as uh, right after Christmas, uh, we got a verdict on a 30, uh, nearly 38-year-old cold case murder uh, that happened here in Spokane in 1986. Uh, it was tried before a jury in uh, 2000, late 2021. Uh, to a hung jury, and uh, my deputy prosecuting attorney, uh, Rich Whaley, and myself retried the case before a judge, and we got a guilty verdict of first-degree murder, uh, which was announced on December 26. Wow. And uh, surprisingly, surprisingly, Tim, there was some actually very good reporting on the impact of the four daughters of this victim of living their lives without their mom and uh, some of the challenges they had. You don't hear that very much. I was really no, grateful you well, it, uh, it, but to see, the spokesman for putting that in there. See, and I, I, I've looked at that case. I'm glad you brought that case up because that's a perfect example of what we don't hear, what the justice system, I think, forgets, especially the activist justice system that wants to put most of the legal burden on the prosecutors and the victims, and there isn't that legal burden on the perpetrators of, of crime, especially violent crime, because in this case, you had you know, those four daughters that were able to tell the story of the cascading effects of losing their mother. And, and you don't hear that. Like, even if it's a case that's just two, three years out, not like this cold case that was decades old, uh, almost, almost 40 years, there was that cascading effect that could be told. Whereas, uh, you know, someone, a loved one that's injured that can't work or, you know, or deceased and a family loses right. an income, the crime that created those victims, those cascading effects is never adjudicated really. And so that's why I think punishing crime appropriately needs to be something that we as uh, Washingtonians, Americans, people in Spokane County want to see because oftentimes the family's cascading effects don't go away even after the criminal has been released back into the community. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and you, you like you said, you seldom see that aspect of the case reported. And then on top of all of that, there are numerous resentencing opportunities where there's no longer there used to be a concept that we talked about called finality. Uh, for victims in sentencing, and we no longer have that anymore. There are so many doors that are now open in the state of Washington and and continuously increasing the number of doors that are open for, uh, for uh, defendants to be resentenced when, in fact, the reason that we had victim uh, approval or them signing off on it was, hey, here's one of the things you get when you sign off, you get finality. And now we can no longer really tell them that because it's only final as of the laws that exist today. And the laws that exist today, that has to do with the mostly the Washington legislature. And uh, they, they kind of set some of those guidelines for the judiciary. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. And, uh, and the, the legislature is the key to it. As I said, during the 2022 campaign, the tone for the state starts in Olympia uh, and it's in uh, particularly with the majority. And right now, everybody that's paying any attention to what's going on in Olympia knows who has the majority. Uh, the minority is loud. They're vocal. Uh, and uh, They talk much more about victims, but unfortunately, they don't have a, the numbers to carry enough votes. 
Well, I think that's where the public can be involved. And, of course, folks, the legislative session has uh, begun January 8th. It will end March 7th. I think, Larry, we need to try to get you back on and talk about things that are going to be affecting your office because right now the sausage making of, of legislation is occurring and bills are being uh, proposed probably on a daily basis at this point. And you're going to be looking to see what laws are going to affect the judicial system and the prosecutor's office, I'm assuming. Absolutely. Yeah, I would be uh, very honored to come back on, say, mid-session or something like that and talk about some of the progress that's been made and then some of the areas where I think that we're actually taking steps backwards, which I do expect to happen. Yeah, and mid-session, that's a, a wise time to probably approach it because, of course, those laws get proposed and altered and changed in the committee process, and that's where uh, we as citizens can be involved. We can dial that hotline at 1-800-562-6000. That's one to write down, folks. That's the legislative hotline. We want to make comments on bills. That's one of the easy ways to go. Of course, you can email the legislators, but that hotline, one 800 562-6000 is one way to engage with those uh, legislative folks that are are going to be in those committees looking at laws. And I think there is going to be a, a tone this year having to do with laws. We've seen that really heavy, I think, in the last decade or so. You know, we had the, the Blake decision and things that really handcuffed our law enforcement. But, but in handcuffing our law enforcement, it also makes it hard on prosecutors because, of course, we know a lot of crime, violent crime has to do with addiction, uh, the, the drug aspects of things, and, and prosecuting those probably was a little sticky with some of those uh, gray areas, I'm assuming, huh? No doubt about it. And if you want to know what legalization of drugs would do, if we hadn't end up heading that direction, take a look at Oregon. That experiment has utterly failed. Uh, they are unable to provide the treatment uh, providers. They don't have the treatment facilities. Uh, and they have a, a severe problem in there that's causing a lot of legislators there to regret the fact that they took those steps and may, in fact, at some point in time, if they get the numbers, uh, reverse that. Um, and uh, most of the treatment programs that we offer in Washington are voluntary and very frequently they flat turn them down. Yeah, and that is a problem. I, I think that some of this community court action that we've seen in the veterans courts and some of the things to try to get people um, out of the turmoil they're in and heading in the right direction is better than just, in, you know, incarcerate, incarcerate. You know, that's, you know, that's where the activists come in and they think that we're over incarcerating. But we somehow have to keep those uh, prolific criminals from continuing to create victims. And and I hear on news reporting and other things, you know, a vast majority of crime is is really committed by a small community, and oftentimes it's tied to drugs. Well, and that's true, but the most of the offenders that are in the Department of Corrections right now are not drug offenders. Uh, they are violent offenders, uh, and they may have some drugs attached to that, but they're violent offenders overall. And if you want to talk about over-incarceration, take a look at the fact that there's over uh, around seven and three-quarter million people that live in the state of Washington, and the incarceration rate is published every day on the Department of, of uh, Corrections website. Last I saw it, it's running around 14,000 or so out of 7.75 million people. If that's a mass incarceration, then we have a problem. But I, as my understanding is we incarcerate in Washington at one of the lowest levels in the entire country. We do not mass incarcerate in Washington state. Well, we have one of the lowest incarceration rates, but we also have uh, one of the higher crime rates, especially when it comes to property crimes and uh, in, in those types of areas, don't we? 
Exactly that. And then the, the other thing we have that's hurting us is we have the lowest uh, uh, population to police officer ratio in the entire country. So we're not really responding or investigating the crime to even make the arrests to, to go to prosecutor's offices that's, that are also uh, lacking in uh, attorneys. The fewer the law enforcement officers you have, the fewer number of calls are going to be able to answer and investigate effectively. Absolutely. Yeah, and it does seem like in recent years we've we've not really looked at the drug offenses because there's often too many other criminal aspects that uh, of course you talked about sentencing just a little bit ago the sentencing uh for for drug possession has pretty much gone away the the sentencing for uh, selling drugs is not what it used to be, but the other criminal elements that police do respond to, the violent crimes, uh, those you can get better sentences to, to keep the community safe. It seems like that's the trend. Well, we're still we're still dealing with uh, decent penalties for violent crime, uh, property crime. Uh, it, you, it takes a lot of uh, a lot of property crime convictions to get a decent conviction in terms of. You know, if you're going to look at the effectiveness effectiveness of rehabilitative programs, uh, you, you know, 60 days in jail, 30 days in jail, 90 days in jail, that's not enough time for anything to take effect. If they go off to the department, you got to spend the money. Ask the DOC if you get a chance uh, what they think about uh, the uh, resources that the state is uh, committing uh, to uh, transitioning and uh, and re- rehabilitation while they're inside Department of Corrections, uh, it uh, it isn't what it should be. It isn't certainly isn't what it could be, and it's definitely not what it needs to be. Yeah, and when we're looking at these voluntary programs that folks are just denying, uh, we also you know should again when you come back on the air with us, we should talk about the success rate of those programs, the people that go into them. Uh, you know, there, there's got to be an incentive to folks that are creating victims in our community to change their behaviors, but it does take time and there, we need to have effective programs that get people reintroduced into the community in a positive way. I want to thank Larry Haskell for coming on the show with us today. So again, thanks for, for being with us and, and definitely we'll have you back on mid session. So folks be listening because we're going to be talking again, because the only way that we as citizens, our listeners, the reason why we do the show is to stay informed so that we can take action. Just having information doesn't do us any good unless we can do something with it. And we want to engage with those legislators to make wise decisions in helping uh, the prosecutor's office and the justice system keep our community safe. So thanks again, folks. We're out of time for today's show. We'll be with you again tomorrow. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Right Spokane Perspective. We are sponsored by Right Spokane Perspective LLC and made possible by advertisers you hear and contributions from listeners like you.